Get your entire podcast library hosted at the Podcaster Matrix. Podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. When rehabbing an athlete after an injury or surgery, there are lots of protocols that are out there and tools at the disposal of the physical therapist and athletic trainer. It can get overwhelming sometimes, especially for those of us as physicians who are diagnosing the problem but aren't actually doing the rehab. Not sure if it's me, but it seems like in the last decade, compared to the first decade of my practice, I'm getting asked about using all sorts of different treatment methods for my patients in their rehab. Blood flow restriction, or BFR training, is one of those tools that seems to come up more often these days than not, and I get more and more requests to utilize it in my pediatric and adolescent age patients. But where is the science for these patients, and what do we know about BFR and its safety in kids? Does it help with patient outcomes? How exactly does it work? Today in the pod, we'll cover these questions and more. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Dr. Dan Lorenz is the Director of Sports Medicine at Ortho Kansas and Lawrence Memorial Hospital in Lawrence, Kansas. He received his Bachelor of Science in Health Sciences with an emphasis in athletic training, followed by a Master's in Physical Therapy from Grand Valley State University. He then completed his Doctorate in Physical Therapy at the University of St. Augustine. He completed the Duke University Sports Physical Therapy Fellowship and was an Assistant Athletic Trainer and Physical Therapist for the Kansas City Chiefs from 2005 to 2007. He was named the National Strength and Conditioning Association Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation Professional of the Year in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Great to be here, Dr. Halstead. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, I'm glad to be back behind the microphone again. It's been about a month off. I'm sure, as you know, clinic schedules, all after hour sports stuff, family obligations. It's been at their typical fall peak. It's made free time a premium for recording podcasts. And, you know, obviously the other factor of that is having guests that have that free time, which falls always a little bit trickier for sports medicine. But we're back and I'm excited to talk about BFR today. It's something I wanted to cover for a while now, actually. So, Dan, just to get everyone on the same page, let's start simple and tell our listeners exactly what it's meant when talking about blood flow restriction training. Let's talk about first what it is not, because there's a perception that blood flow restriction training means like cutting off blood supply and exercising under those conditions. It is not that at all. What it is, is training with uh, occlusion of venous flow with restriction of arterial blood flow. And I probably think the best way in your mind to visualize this is imagine getting your blood pressure taken. They go to the max, the max inflation, so to speak, or when they feel that systolic pressure go away and then you back off a bit and then you train under low loads with lower restriction pressure basically. I suppose that's about the 30 second elevator summary I can give you. You know, I always think of uh, when we talk about BFR, I go back to my, and this is dating myself, obviously, for back in the 80s with the WWF wrestlers and having their nice tight tourniquets around their arms, so to speak, so they look a little bit more swole, so to speak, <laughs> in that sort of situation. I know that's not what it is, but I, just, I, I kind of picture that a little bit, you know, when we're talking about doing things like that. What are the theories of how BFR training may actually work in a patient? There's a number of them out there. And what's really cool about BFR, I have to say, is that, you know, so many of the things that we use in sports medicine, oftentimes the, the theory and the clinical application comes before the, the science behind it. And actually, it's quite the opposite with this. So we've known about the mechanisms of, of BFR for probably over 20 years at this point, which is really exciting. But really, I think the main mechanisms that we can point to right now are recruitment of high threshold motor units as you approach fatigue and the higher the effort that you're putting forth because of the pressure 
and what it means to work with low loads under, I mean, imagine trying to exercise with a blood pressure cuff on. So usually you're working towards failure, which there's more high threshold motor unit recruitment. The other way is really by building muscle hypertrophy through the lactate accumulation and the metabolic pathways that are activated through the metabolic acidosis that occurs through training close to failure. There is also other ways as well that have been proposed. There's an increase in growth hormone, which is a hypertrophic stimulus, but it's really important to note though, and, and I can't emphasize this enough for your listeners, that a lot of the benefits of BFR training you get the same benefits with our normal traditional training methods. I, I want to make it clear that a lot of these really exciting hormonal and, and pathway stuff that we read about with lactate and high threshold motor units, we get this with normal training. The whole idea behind this is that we can train with much lower loads and get similar benefit as higher load training. And as we know, with a lot of our patients and athletes that are not appropriate at various phases of the rehabilitation, that they're not able to do higher load training. So we can do basically tricking the muscles of, in effect of doing higher load training with much lower loads. You talk about low load training with blood flow restriction. That's what I read about a lot in preparing for this today. But is, is there such a thing as high load blood flow restriction training? And can you kind of talk about that in terms of the, the high load resistance training and what exactly we mean by that when we're talking about rehab? There was a study actually not too long ago in AJSM where they did high load training, but really that's the point of BFR is that if you can do high loads, train with high loads, the idea of BFR is that like most of the studies, if you look at it, they have a, a high load group that was like 70% of one RM or whatever for whatever exercise. But then the BFR group was at 20 to 40% of one RM. So that's the point of this is that you would train with much lower loads, much earlier in the rehab process or frankly, with just less loading on the tissue and get the same or similar benefits as you would with traditional higher load training. Does that make sense? Did I answer that appropriately? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, I, that's why I, when I kept seeing this kind of reference to low load BFR, I was curious, is there such a thing as high load BFR and is there any additional benefit or kind of thing like that? But yeah, absolutely. That, that kind of clarifies things for me for sure. But yeah, my, in, my answer might look a lot different in five to 10 years if we do more, <laughs> but, but right now, no, you would not. If you're going to go high loads, go high loads. The BFR is specifically for lower load training. And that's the, that's the case with a thing like a podcast is that our answers will probably look a lot different for a lot of the things we talk about in sports medicine in another five to 10 years for sure, just with how ever changing this field is. When we're talking about considering reducing circulation to an area, what concerns should we have about this treatment just from a safety profile? And is this truly safe to do? Or are there complications that have been reported about using BFR training? What should we be looking out for? Far and away, this is the most significant concern that gets brought up both in clinicians when I teach courses or, or this topic comes up. Again, this is the primary issue on uh, healthcare professionals' minds. And I think probably the, the best best way I can summarize this in a second is, is, is don't worry about it. <laughs> if we look at surgical tourniquets, surgical tourniquets are on at much greater pressures for a much greater time. And most of the studies that show when they look at, you know, DVTs or clots after that is it's under 1%. So we are working out with the cuff on for a much, much shorter amount of time with less pressure. That's the first thing. There are a couple of studies that have actually shown that there may be a protective factor with blood clotting when it comes to using these cuffs through tissue plasma antigen. Now, the other aspect of this is that when we look at DVTs, there was a great article, and I would point everybody to it, in JOSPT in 2019 by Bond et al., 
and they talked about the risk of uh, thromboembolism in orthopedics using uh, BFR. The risk is extraordinarily low. Now, like anything else, like any other modality that we use, there are certainly relative contraindications and precautions. And this is one of those ones where, to be frank, you just have to use your head. The um, precautions are if you have a history of DVT, if you have hypertension, diabetes, circulatory issues, varicose veins, pregnancy is a relative contraindication. So there's certainly people that you should consider. But I would actually argue if you're dealing with folks that have those considerations, BFR is is probably not their main concern or the main modality that you would consider. At this time, there are no studies showing that, no, not even a case study, that there has been a BFR-induced clot or adverse event when done with appropriate training methods. There was one case study where a individual trained every single day over an hour and they developed a effort thrombosis in the upper extremity. Well, okay, first off, you, you, the cuff is only on for if you're strength training for a max of 10 minutes, usually a little bit less, and you do, wouldn't leave it on for an hour or do it every day. So usually when you see situations like this, it's, it's extreme errors in training. Yeah. And those effort thromboses, you know, those are pretty rare to happen anyways. And I've had actually a couple patients that have had them and obviously it's not related to anything related to BFR. Right. You have to be cognizant about those things. Those people may have underlying hypercoagulability disorders. That One area that I think is certainly worth up for debate on this topic. And I had the privilege of speaking at a number of professional meetings and you know, sometimes this is still a relatively new concept to orthopedists around the country or primary care physicians. And when you talk about doing this in the post-op phases, they're very, very nervous about the DBT. And I understand the reservation. And frankly, it makes me a little uncomfortable too. I don't do it. And this is certainly something worth debating. And, and if you put people on a panel, you could talk about this. There are people that start doing this right away post-op. And, and I just don't believe that. I always say, hey, where's the fire? Like we have so much more to work on in those early phases. They're in pain anyway. They're swollen. You know, I've certainly talked to people that have done BFR and they've had some leakage of knee effusion through the portals. Like, I, again, I don't know why we have to rush in those early phases. Like the Super Bowl is not tomorrow. <laughs> I got plenty of stuff I could do in those first couple of weeks and lessen some of the risk or even lessen some of the concern about having a clot. There is a degree of getting the muscle going and uh, because of the effort that's required under BFR, you get, you know, EMG activities higher. But like I said, most of the studies that look at post-op, they're starting at two weeks. And I think that's an entirely reasonable time frame to get started. And, and yeah, I think you make people feel a lot more comfortable if you wait a little bit after surgery. I think that's probably part of the area that we deal with as a practice in sports medicine is that, you know, whoever can get someone better the quickest and the fastest and get that athlete back out on the field or the court uh, as soon as possible, that's the person that's going to be the victor in all this, right? So I, I understand why people probably try and push the envelope there. But I mean, we've seen this happen with ACLs. I mean, there was this uh, probably a decade ago is who could get these people back onto the field the quickest. We were talking about, hey, we can get someone back in three, four months. I'm like, wait, hold on. And now the philosophy is, is like, hey, maybe we should get these people back to full participation until nine to 12 months afterwards, just to make sure. And I, you know, again, it's one of those things that I think it's just everybody wants to keep pushing the envelope, which I get it. But we also have to look about, is that really going to turn out to be the best outcome in the end for that particular patient? So I, I agree with you as far as the pump and the brakes kind of thing there. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And, the, and, and the whole idea is that, and that's why it's such a great advancement in our field is that we know the issues with the quads long-term after an ACL, for example. Well, we can now work hypertrophy 
of getting, you know, inflating those tires, so to speak, at a much earlier phase with much lower loads, particularly if you have concerns, even though, again, these are unfounded concerns about, you know, the graft getting stretched out and things like that. We can do those things earlier with a lot less loads. So again, that's where, you know, the mix of uh, being advanced, being progressive, doing uh, evidence-based techniques, it's kind of a healthy mix of what our traditional training methods are, have normally been. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our discussion on blood flow restriction training. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcaster Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back, and it's time to let the tourniquet down as we continue with Dr. Dan Lorenz talking about blood flow restriction training. You know, the big buzzword in medicine these days is the discussion of FDA approval for something for obvious reasons and and centered around the world of COVID these days. But what's the status of blood flow restriction training with the FDA? You know what? There's, There's a difference between being cleared by the FDA and listed by the FDA. There are a couple of devices that are listed by the FDA, but you do not need clearance by the FDA to use a blood flow restriction device. It's considered a medical device, just like our, you know, treadmills or other devices that we use. So if there's any concern about having to get an FDA approved device, you don't need to do that. Same thing with certification. You know, you don't need a certification to practice. Really, it comes down to, for our athletic trainers and physical therapists on this podcast, it really comes down to your state practice acts and frankly, what the people in the ivory tower that you work with are okay with. That's that's really what you have to be concerned about. Right now, there's no issues with the FDA on that. And, and I would point you to our recent article we published in Journal of Athletic Training. We go into a little more detail about that. I'll spare everybody the boring details right now, but that, that really highlights what you need to know about the FDA. And we'll be sure to have a link to that uh, document. I read through it. It's actually very good. So I will make sure that we have a link to that in our show notes so you can reference to that very easily later on. 
I'd love for you, Dan, just to talk to me a little bit about how you approach and treat a patient using BFR. Like basically, you know, someone's in your office getting rehab. What makes you go through the decision process that, well, yeah, this person could be a good candidate for BFR training. What what parameters do you use as far as determining things like your cuff size, the pressures, where you place it, how long you use it for, basically kind of the down and dirty details of what you're doing in your rehab. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm waiting a minimum of two weeks after a, a post-operative case. In cases where I have folks, I'll give you an example of somebody that I really like to use it on. Let's say you have somebody that's maybe middle-aged, very active. Maybe they like sprint triathlons. Maybe they like to do bike races and they have significant knee OA or unicompartmental knee OA. You know, they feel weak. Maybe their quad's a little smaller and they want to train still for these races. You know, this is somebody that's a great candidate for it. Basically, in cases where people need to get, which is pretty much all of our patients, they need strength and hypertrophy after surgery or after an injury. I certainly don't do it on everybody, but typically I'm looking at the post-ops because usually that's where we have to delay loading the tissue for some time. So for example, I have a young young man right now who just had a OCD lesion repair in his knee. He's non-weight bearing for six weeks. That's going to be a guy I'm going to be doing BFR on because I can't load him very much. You could have an athlete with, uh, let's say a cross-country runner with a tibial stress fracture. Uh, who's non-weight bearing for a certain amount of time. This is somebody that's very appropriate for BFR. So the whole idea is, is to be able to still work on strength, still work on hypertrophy in situations where either post-operative restrictions or injury restrictions don't allow you to. Would you use it potentially on somebody after a total knee replacement? Potentially. Is this somebody that's very, very healthy otherwise? Or again, this is where clinical decision-making comes in. If you have somebody that's got diabetes they're obese, they have hypertension. This is like the last person I would use BFR on. Typically, again, it's somebody that is otherwise healthy. Oh, we all need strength and hypertrophy after injury, but uh, I'm specifically looking at this for folks that are in cases where they are not able to weight bear or they have restrictions that don't allow them to load tissues to later. Now, certainly we can use this for the upper body as well. So if you have athletes maybe with a pec tendon rupture repair, bicep tendon rupture repair, I just finished rehab on a guy that was a strong man who had a distal biceps repair. I mean, I was getting him on this in the early phases as well, because of course he was paranoid about the muscle size and, and losing all of his strength. So that's somebody that was appropriate for it. People that have rotator cuff repairs, you could certainly do it on them as well. So hopefully this kind of gives you an idea about the type of people that you would use it on. I kind of highlighted earlier the folks that I would not use it on. This is me personally. Certainly there are folks that say, go ahead and do it. But again, I'm, I'm all about mitigating risk. And I mentioned those relative contraindications before. Then in regards to cuff sizes, so typically the wider cuff you use, the lower pressure you're going to need. So that's why we tend to use wider cuffs for the lower body. So you're looking anywhere from 10 to about 15 centimeter size cuffs. For the upper body, you would use about a five to a 10 centimeter size cuff. If you're looking at pressures that we train at, ideally higher pressures are better. So typically the way you do blood flow restriction training is that, now there's, again, there's a couple ways to do it. There's different price points with different systems. Probably one way that you could do it that is more, more of the low tech ways and probably the cheaper system, so to speak, is you would inflate a cuff for the leg, let's say. You would palpate the pedal pulse, inflate the cuff until the pedal pulse disappears, and whatever pressure that is, you would take about 60% of that. Now, if you have systems that are a little more pricey that actually take a personalized pressure, you're typically training around 80% of limb occlusion pressure. We do know, at least now anyway, that if you can tolerate higher pressures, you should train there. However, there are studies showing that you could train at 40 to 60% and get benefits as well. 
Now, why this is important is that this is might be what you might call an onboarding approach, because whenever I do this on a patient, I explain why, but then I say, look, this can be very uncomfortable. So if they're a little hesitant, or if they're kind of giving it a look like, are you sure? <laughs> I might onboard them with some lower pressure, basically let them acclimatize to it like we would with heat in the summer, <laughs> and then eventually hopefully get them to that higher pressure. In the upper extremity, we're training at about 50% of limb occlusion pressure. Again, same thing. We can onboard them with lower pressures. When we look at what exercise to perform or how to do it, typically it is a set of 30. The rest periods are anywhere from 30 seconds to 60 seconds. And then you do three more sets of 15 with that same rest period. It appears when we look at hypertrophy that going to failure on at least one set is probably the the best practice. It doesn't mean don't do three sets of 15. It just means that on that final set, you might go to failure. So what this might look like is if we have, let's say, an ACL and we are 12 weeks out and we do seated knee extensions. Of course, you want to know, you know, how do we determine load? Well, there's a few ways to do that. One would be a two to three on the OmniRes scale. One would be that you could take a one RM of the well leg and then take 20% of that. You could try that. If you're at a point in your training where you could do a 10 RM, you could take a 10 RM, multiply by 1.33, and that'll give you an estimate of their one RM and then take 20% of that. So I hopefully I'm not losing folks when I talk, when I, when I mention those potential methods. So then you would do, let's just say they have 20 pounds. You would do a set of 30. They would rest 30 to 60 seconds. It is uncomfortable. There's no doubt about that. Patients need to understand that. And then they would do a set of 15, another set of 15, and then a final set to failure. We would ideally like to keep the cuff pressure, but it may be that they're really having a hard time with the rest periods. We could always extend the rest period. I'd rather extend the rest period than decrease the pressure. I've had heavyweight college wrestlers say, dude, I can't handle this. It's making me feel nauseous. So we deflate. So sometimes you only know that until uh, you get training if people can tolerate it or not, because it is uncomfortable. And like I said, you should warn folks about that. Typically what we do is we do one exercise. You can deflate for a couple minutes and then reinflate and do another. In those subacute phases, if you want to do a, a straight leg raise, a bridge, a sideline leg raise, kind of in a superset circuit format. I think that's fine and appropriate to do that as well. It really just depends on on who's in front of you and what the what the goals are. I think that's a, a really good summary. Obviously, the purpose of this podcast is not to teach everybody how to do BFR. So I think, yeah, your summary is actually really, really good with that. But obviously, we're a pediatric sports medicine podcast. So that's why I want to switch gears just a little bit here as far as kind of what I see in my office and kind of get your take on this. You recently published a clinical viewpoint in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy, and it was titled Blood Flow Restriction Cause for Optimism, But Let's Not Abandon the Fundamentals. And I know you you kind of alluded to this earlier. We'll be sure to have a link to that uh, as well in our show notes. I really did appreciate uh, several approaches to that, and in particular that you shared some of my concern about where we are in sports medicine, that we kind of like love to put the cart in front of the horse with some of our treatment methods. You and I both know that this gets driven a lot from professional sports and then trickles down to the weekend warrior. I don't know that necessarily that's been the case so much from BFR, because I, I don't remember seeing a lot of athletes talking about that as much. But, you know, everybody wants to know what their favorite athlete's getting. It may not apply to them. Specifically, we know that as well. But this really seems different to me. You know, I guess a concern I have is, is being a specialist that sees lots of pediatric and adolescent patients and as a non-surgeon, 
I don't see too many things as someone who's not operating on someone because I can certainly see applications for people postoperatively, maybe in these younger patients that need BFR. But, you know, I'll get examples of people calling and asking me to do BFR in someone who's got patellofemoral pain. And this kid is like, you know, not that off and, and clearly should have the ability to do normal kind of exercises and, and was not in that much pain. So these are where I start to say, well, are we just using it to use it on anybody that we possibly can? And, and to my knowledge, there's really not as a lot of research on the adolescent and younger age group. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try or use these things there by any means, but I do get a lot of requests to add this. And you kind of mentioned the concept of the shiny new toy. And I, I feel that's kind of the case with this a little bit. What are your thoughts and what inspired you to write that viewpoint? Well, a number of things inspired reason for writing it, because just like you said, everybody wants to use it on everyone all the time. And that's always that always happens with any shiny new toy. I was talking to people that were dry needling tendons. It's what uh, what are we doing? You said something a second ago that that made me realize that it's important to mention <laughs> that. Why aren't your normal practices working? You know, yeah, I don't have yeah. a problem getting I don't have a problem getting people stronger you know, maybe it's you. <laughs> so that that's the thing. Like, and I mentioned that in my final paragraph, uh, that viewpoint that I wrote, like, why are you having trouble with normal training? Let me give you an example. Again, this is where I, I tend to disagree a little bit with some folks. And, and again, it's a healthy disagreement. For example, I don't like to use this on the throwing arm in pitchers. We know about their vascular issues, uh, the thoracic outlet troubles, you know, do I want to be restricting neurovascular bundle in a thrower. Now, certainly I have no studies to point you to the fact that it's negative. There are plenty of studies showing that that people do just fine and there's benefits in strength and hypertrophy, but I don't have a problem getting a pitcher's shoulder strong with normal training, right? Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. really why I wrote this viewpoint is that we have to use clinical decision-making based on the theory and application of the device. You know, similarly, I get asked a lot about, is this appropriate for tendinopathy? This is not my first choice for tendinopathy. Tendons love tension and they love load. And you're taking away both of those things with BFR. Now, lower loads, but they like more load if you can give it. Mm -hmm. So now we, if we shift gears to the pediatric or adolescent population, again, I will say that this talk or this discussion may look completely different in five to 10 years as we know more. I know one clinical trial that's approved right now at Connecticut Children's Hospital where they're doing a randomized controlled trial. It should be wrapped up in the beginning of 2022 where they're doing BFR in a pediatric clients. I will say this. I mentioned earlier about high threshold motor units and with BFR, the uh, training to failure, training with high effort because you're getting close to failure with high threshold motor units. Well, guess what? Children less capable of recruiting high threshold motor units. They have lower high threshold motor units compared to adults. As a result, they have lower lactate accumulation compared to adults. So remember I said earlier, one of the hypertrophic stimulus drivers is lactate accumulation, which leads to the anabolic cascade. So they don't have those abilities. Volitional muscle activation is lower than adults in kids. So they're not going to get that benefit. You know, kids tend to lack, you know, they lack androgens. So mm -hmm. for the, basically pubertal status would tell you if the kid's appropriate. Do I do this in high school kids? Yes, because they have growth hormone pumping through their, their system at this point. As I said earlier, there is an increase in growth hormone secretion. A number of studies have shown this acutely after BFR training. Well, if you have a child, there's no 
a lot of there's not a lot of growth hormone pumping through their system. And again, you would know more about this than me as a as a pediatric sports medicine. And certainly, uh, feel free to tell me I'm wrong about that. But yeah. everything I know is that it, growth hormone is dependent on pubertal status, mm-hmm. and not just that, but this is uncomfortable. You know, it's you know it, it hurts sometimes to do this. And I think the bottom line is again, Dr. Halstead, is that what do we do with normal training? Kids benefit. I mean, can your child single leg squat? Can they do a good squat? Can they do a push up? There are just so many other things we can do to get kids strong without putting a really uncomfortable device on them. And again, why would we abandon what we're always doing? We know that children do really well with strength training and they get stronger with normal training methods. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying that if we look at what kind of hormones and and what a kid's structure is and their makeup compared to an adult. Right now, I just don't see appropriateness for this in the pediatric population. Now, that being said, if I have a child that, let's say, you know, I had a kid a long time ago before BFR really, really came on the forefront. He had Allier's disease in his femur and had multiple tumors and stuff in his femur, and he had multiple surgeries. I mean, here's a kid that was non-weight-bearing for a really long time. Mm-hmm. I'd have been curious to try it on him. And even if not that, a close cousin to BFR is ischemic preconditioning, mm-hmm. which is, again, it's a little different. What that is, is it's full occlusion for five minutes, and then you decompress for five, and basically you repeat that cycle for three or four cycles but it's not with exercise. Really, you're just laying there. And that's really how, if you go back 20 years, I don't mean to go on a tangent here, but where I'm going with this is that that might be an option for for that population. But I guess to summarize, I know it's kind of long-winded here. At this time, I don't see a place for this with the pre-pubertal population. I I always kind of joke that I live in Missouri, so it's the show me state. So you got to show me that it does it. I I will never be the first person that's going (laughs) to freak. I will frankly admit that I will not be the first person that utilizes these types of things in populations that I don't know that it really makes a big difference in. But I'm totally open to those things. But it's it's one of those things, like I said, when I get these requests all the time, I'm like, well, you're right. What what are we? Why are we not using our traditional treatment methods and and what's going on there? And the bottom line, usually I see most off is that number one, kids have very poor home programs or they're just not compliant with their home programs. And that's probably the biggest factor there, number one. And maybe we just need to revisit that and, hey, sit down and talk with these kids and what are you actually doing and make sure they're doing them correctly. But you're right. I mean, the basic functional movement patterns of a lot of our kids these days is very, very poor. I mean, that's been shown time and time again. And with a lot of these athletes, they're they're basically working out and exercising on very poor foundations of some core skills and, and motor movement patterns that they just don't have. And then if we're not addressing those and, and building that foundation back up, it's going to be really hard to top them off, so to speak, with what we're trying to do with, with things like BFR or other treatments. So, and not to, you know, not to go down this rabbit hole, but the early sports specialization issue has, I think, amplified this even more. Kids are showing up and all they're doing is working on technical training. They have their shooting coach. They have this coach. They have that coach. They're not building their athleticism. They're not getting in in the weight room when appropriate. I tell coaches or parents all the time, you know, have your kids play tag for warm-up. Like everything is structured. Run here, run there, do this, do that. There's no... There's no, uh, you know, randomness and chaos to training. Kids need that stuff. We are demanding that they do all of this training with the year-round sports and you got your club team and your high school team. 
And it's, you're not, not only not building athleticism, again, athleticism is different than performance, but we're not building their resilience. We're asking them to do all this stuff and they get all these overuse injuries, as you well know. And it's like, well, they're breaking down because they don't have the, the tissue uh, load tolerance to handle this stuff. So anyway, again, don't mean to go down that, uh, but it does, I think, uh, relate to this topic very well. Yeah, I love your uh, concept of playing tag as a warm up. I, I think kids, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's exciting for kids to do that. And and you're right, the randomness of the movement there, the quick stops and starts, the acceleration, the changes, all those types of things, just recruiting those that neuromuscular pattern of just kind of making things that decision on the fly kind of thing. I, I really like that idea. I, I, I think you well, got something there. <laughs> you know, I tell people, when, you know, I, I speak a lot and I teach a lot. And, you know, like agility, for example, has a physical component and a technical or a cognitive component. Component. Mm-hmm. So we address the physical with our strength training, but the cognitive piece is the perception, decision-making tasks, anticipating movements, those kind of things. And you get that with tag, right? And why yeah. do, you know, who's at most risk for ACL tears? We know it's a high velocity injury, but it's unplanned movements where a lot of times these things happen, right? Yep. yep. So certainly gymnasts and dancers tear their ACLs, but they do it at a much less rate than the high-risk sports, lacrosse, soccer, basketball, because there's unanticipated, unplanned movements that happen a lot more in those uh, situations. Why is it lower in gymnasts and dancers and figure skaters? Because it's pre-planned programming that they've done hundreds and hundreds of times. Anyway, you get hopefully you get my point here is that uh, I think unstructured free play is a really good way to approach this and way before you put a blood pressure cuff on somebody. Agreed. You know, my big question always too is, all right, so we, we can see these things in studies where we see improvements in muscle hypertrophy and strength, but does that translate into clinical improvement in the condition or a significant change for patient outcomes from those traditional methods? So I, you know, when looking at things here, I found a couple of studies that were looking at the adolescent population. One looked at improving their one rep max strength for back squats in high school students. And it was shown to be effective in that particular group. And and again, the thing we have to remember with most of these studies, these are very small groups. That's always something we have to kind of take a little pause on when we have small numbers in these studies is how much does that translate if we had a larger group. And then there was another study published last year in AJSM that showed no difference in outcomes in a randomized controlled trial for after ACL reconstruction in a primarily adolescent age cohort. So we had kind of a pretty good group there that looked at adolescence. And then there's mixed data in adults about actual changes in outcome, which to me would be the ultimate assessment with this type of intervention. So, so where do you think we're at with the science as whether this method truly improves outcome? You know, that's a the great question that comes up a lot. And this goes back to that whole athleticism and performance. I get asked, does BFR help with performance? Well, probably indirectly. You know, theoretically, if you increase somebody's strength, you may, in, may increase their power, which might increase their vertical jump but you did nothing to increase their three-point percentage ability, their ability to hit home runs, their ability to hit the strike zone or throw a fastball through a fruit loop every time, right? So that's in regards to athletes. So we don't have a lot, we don't really have hardly any data on if it actually improves performance. Same thing with if we look at, for example, uh, knee arthritis. There's a number of studies that have shown that it helps with strength and hypertrophy, pain relief. But if we look at the clinical aspect of what is it done for function, you you are exactly right. The data is a bit back and forth on this. Now, if we look at you know studies where they did BFR in the elderly population, for example, they have shown increased in stair power, increased timed up and go scores, increase in like six minute walk tests, things like that. So there are ones that show that, but certainly strength hypertrophy does not necessarily indicate better performance. And it, it, this goes 
when we look at even strength coaches that are putting or personal trainers putting stuff on their social media feeds and oh so so and so's vertical jump increased 12 inches yeah that's great you increase their athleticism but are they a better football player are they a better soccer player (laughs) sure sure i don't know if you need to make that metric for the nfl combine then that probably will be okay for you then right (laughs) right that's exactly it yeah for sure when you're doing bfr on a patient like after you've done the procedure on them, do you talk to them about anything as far as expectation afterwards? I did see one study that had a fairly high, over half were reporting delayed onset muscle soreness. So I'm just kind of curious if you kind of say, hey, these are the things you need to be watching out for, things to expect. After yeah, for sure. But, oh, for sure. Sorry. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, but I mean, if you have a good workout with normal weights, you should have some DOMS, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I do mention that. I, again, I talked to them about this ahead of time. I think far and away, the the most significant issue with, with this afterwards is, yeah, it's just muscle soreness, maybe a little more sore where the cuff was. Some people get some patechiae, you know, from the pressure. Some folks will get some, we don't want long-term numbness. They might get a little numb during it. And that's why I said it might, the pressure might be too high, especially if you're not using a personalized system. So those are all short-lived. But again, if you look at the side effect studies, it's extraordinarily low and they're very, very short-lived. Yes. Other than some DOMS, I don't think you have much to be concerned about. Great. We like to end our podcast with a feature we call the Pearl of the Podcast. It's our guest's time to give us a specific take-home nugget of information. So, Dan, what is your Pearl of the Podcast? When it comes to peds, the juice is not worth the squeeze, as of now at least. <laughs> wow. Wow. There's there's a nugget there. I've not had anybody give me one like that just yet. So, And this is almost two years of doing this podcast. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> you thought about that one, didn't you? Well, I saw, yeah, I saw that on your, uh, and I was like, and actually I'm, I'm happy to say that that came to my head in about five seconds. So I didn't have to marinate on that one for a while, awesome. I would, but I would say, hopefully I've made this very clear. All kidding aside, another pearl, and I highlighted this in my editorial in IJSPT, we can't abandon the fundamentals. This is supposed to be a complement or an adjunct to normal training methods. It's not supposed to be a replacement. I say all the time. If you have two athletes and one has done BFR all summer in the weight room because it's the sexy, cool thing to do, and there's another offensive lineman in a gym far, far away putting tons of plates on the bar, my money's on the guy with plates on the bar all day, every day. Mm -hmm. So we cannot abandon traditional methods that we know work to use the shiny toy. So please uh, consider that moving forward. Yeah. So, and I, and I appreciate that take. And, uh, I, this was very helpful for me as a physician to get a better understanding and kind of background with BFR. I, I truly appreciate your time and, and your expertise with this. And so I would like to thank uh, Dr. Dan Lorenz for joining us today to talk about blood flow restriction training. Hopefully our listeners found it as beneficial as I did and give them a better grasp overall on this technique and method of rehabilitation. So be sure to check out our entire podcast library on the web at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com or through your favorite podcast app. We truly do appreciate your feedback and five-star reviews. I'm actually looking into getting some podcast swag after all for hopefully after the new year. So be sure to leave those reviews and I'll try to get some swag into our fans. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.